Section 25 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Caution. A man is going about the streets of Laramie claiming to be John the Baptist. He has light hair and chin whiskers, is stout built, and looks like a farmer. We desire to warn those of our readers who may be inclined to trust him that he is not what he purports to be. We have taken great pains to look the matter up and find, as a result of our research, that John the Baptist is dead. A Blow to the Government At the October term of the District Court, we shall resign the office of United States Commissioner for this judicial district, an office which we have held so long and with such great credit to ourselves. Fearing that in the hurry and rush of other business our contemporaries might overlook the matter, we have consented to mention, briefly, the fact that at the opening of court, Judge Blair will be called upon to accept the resignation of one of our most tried and true officials, who has for so long held up this corner of the great national fabric. It has been our solemn duty to examine the greaser who sold liquor to our red brother and filled him up with the deadly juice of the sour mash tree. It has devolved upon us to singe the soft-eyed lad who stole baled hay from the reservation, and it also has been our glorious privilege to examine, in a preliminary manner, the absent-minded party who gathered unto himself the U.S. mule. We have attempted to resign before, but failed. One reason was that it was a novel proceeding in Wyoming, and no one seemed to know how to go to work at it. No one had ever resigned before, and the matter had to be hunted up and the law thoroughly understood. The office is one of great profit, as we have said before. It brings wealth into the coffers of the U.S. Commissioner in a way that is well calculated to turn the head of most people. We have, however, succeeded in controlling ourselves, and have so far suppressed that beastly pride which wealth engenders. With a salary of $7.25 per annum and lead pencils, we have steadily refused to go to Europe, preferring rather to plod along here in the Wild West, although we may never see the beauties of a foreign shore. Official duty was at all times weighing upon our mind like a leaden load. Oft in this stilly night we have been wakened by the oppressing thought that, perhaps at that moment, on some distant reservation, some pale-faced villain might be selling valley tan to the gentle, untutored Indian brave, and it has tortured us and robbed us of slumber and joy. Now it is a relief to know that very soon we shall be free from this great responsibility. If an Indian gets drunk on the reservation, or a time-honored government mule is stolen, we shall not be expected to get up in the night and administer swift and terrible justice to the offender. Old man with a torpid liver can get as drunk as he pleases on the reservation. It does not come under our jurisdiction any more. We can sleep now nights while some other man peels his coat and acts as the United States nemesis for this diocese. Sometime during the ensuing week we will turn over the lead pencil and the blotting paper of the office to our successor. We leave the Indian temperance movement in his hands. 
The United States mule, kleptomaniac also, we leave with him. With a clear conscience and an unliquidated claim against the government for $9.55, the earnings of the past two years, we turn over the office, knowing that although we have sacrificed our health, we have never evaded our duty, no matter how dangerous or disagreeable. Yet we do not ask for any gold-headed cane as a mark of esteem on the part of the government. We have a watch that does very well for us, so that a testimonial consisting of a gold watch costing $250 would be unnecessary. Any little trinket of that kind would, of course, show how ready the Department of Justice is to appreciate the work of an efficient officer, but we do not look for it, nor ask it. A thoroughly fumigated and disinfected conscience is all we want. That is enough for us. Do not call out the band. Just let us retire from the office quietly and unostentatiously. As regards to the United States Commissionship, we retire to private life. In the bosom of our family we will forget the turbulent voyage of official life through which we have passed, and as we monkey with the children around our hearthstone, we will shut our eyes to the official suffering that is going on all around us. POISONS AND THEIR ANECDOTES An amateur scientist sends us a long article written with a purple pencil on both sides of twelve sheets of legal cap and entitled, POISONS AND THEIR ANECDOTES. Will the soft-eyed mullethead please call and get it, also a lick over the eye with a hot stove leg, and greatly oblige the weary throbbing brain that molds the scientific course of this paper? Correspondence Cheyenne, September 6, 1882 The party, consisting of Governor Hale and wife, Secretary Morgan and wife, President Slack of the Wyoming Press Association, and wife, Mr. Baird and myself, start out of Laramie about 8.30 last evening, and excurted along over the hill with some hesitation, arriving here this morning at four o'clock. The engine at first slipped an eccentric on Dale Creek Bridge, and we remained there some time, delayed but happy. Then, as the night wore away and the gray dawn came down over the broad and mellow sweep of plain to the eastward, an engine ahead of us on a freight train blew off her monkey wrench, and we were delayed in the neighborhood of Hazard several more hours. Hazard is a thriving town on the eastern slope of the mountains, with glorious possibilities for a town site. With gas and waterworks and a city debt of $200,000, Hazard will some day attract notice from the civilized world. If her vast deposits of sand and alkali could be brought to the notice of capital, Hazard would some day take rank with such cities as Wilcox and Tye City. Still, we had a good deal of fun. We heard that Whitelaw Reed, one of the New York Tribune, was on board, and we sent the porter into the other car after him. Mr. Reed did not behave as we thought he would at first. We had presumed that he was cold and distant in his manners. But he is not. As soon as the first embarrassment of meeting us was over, he sailed right in and did all the talking himself, just as any cultivated gentleman would. 
He told us all about New York politics and how he was fighting the machine, at the same time, however, casually dropping a remark or two that led us to conclude that it was only one machine that didn't want another one to win. He is a tall, rather fine-looking man with a Grecian nose and long dark hair, which he does up in tin foil at night. I told him that I was grieved to know that his hired man had, inadvertently no doubt, referred to me in a manner that gave the American people an idea that I was a good deal bigger man than I really was. I asked him whether he wanted to apologize then and there, or be thrown over Dale Creek Bridge into the rip-snorting torrent below. He said he didn't believe that such a remark had been made, but if it had, he would go home and kill the man who wrote it, if that would poultice up my wounded heart. I said it would. If he would just mail me the remains of the man who made the remark, not necessarily for publication, but as a guarantee of good faith, it would be all right. We talked all night and incurred the everlasting displeasure of a fat man from San Francisco, who told the porter he wanted his money back because he hadn't slept any all night. He seemed mad because we were having a little harmless conversation among ourselves, and when the clock in the steeple struck four, he rolled over in his berth, gave a large groan, and then got up and dressed. Some people are so morbidly nervous that they cannot sleep on a train, and they naturally get cross and say ungentlemanly things. This man said some things while he was dressing and buttoning his suspenders that made my blood run cold. A man who has no better control of his temper than that ought not to travel at all. He just simply makes a North American side-show of himself. Cheyenne is very greatly improved since I was here last. The building up of the corner opposite the Inner Ocean Hotel has greatly added to the attractiveness of the Magic City, and other work is being done which enhances the beauty of the city very much. Effie Warren is one of those most enterprising and thoroughly vigorous Western businessmen I ever knew. He is an anomaly, I might say. When I say he is an anomaly, I do not mean to reflect upon him in any way, though I do not know the meaning of the word. I simply mean that he is the chief grand rustle of a very rustling city. WHAT THE DEMOCRATIC PARTY NEEDS The candidate for county commissioner on the Democratic ticket of Sweetwater County keeps a drug store, and when a little girl burned her arm against the cook stove and her father went after a package of Russia salve, the genial bourbon gave her a box of rough-on rats. What the Democratic Party needs is not so much a new platform, but a carload of assorted brains that some female seminary had left over. A Letter from Leadville Leadville, Colorado, September 10th this morning we rose at 4.30 and rode from Buena Vista to Leadville, arriving at the Clarendon for breakfast. Our party has been reduced in one way and another until there are only eight here today. Secretary Morgan and family remained at Buena Vista on account of the illness of Misa Lily Morgan, who suffers severely from seasickness on the mountain railroads. One thing I have not mentioned, and an incident certainly worthy of note, was the sudden decision of our president, E.A. Slack, on Friday, to remain at a little station on the South Parle Road, above Como, 
while the party continued on to Buena Vista. Mr. Slack is a man of iron will and sudden impulses, as all who know him are aware. He got in a car at the station referred to, and under the impression that it belonged to our train, remained in it until he got impatient about something, and asked a man who came in with a broom why we were making such a stop at that station. The man said that this car had been sidetracked, and the train had gone some time ago. Then Mr. Slack made the rash remark that he would remain there until the next train. He acts readily in an emergency, and he saw at a glance that the best thing that he could do would be to just stay there and examine the country until he could get the next train. He telegraphed us that the fare was so high on our train that he would see if he couldn't get better rates on the following day. In the meantime, he struck Superintendent Egbert's special car and rode around over the country till morning, while our party took in Buena Vista. The city is but two years old, but very thriving, and has 2,500 to 3,000 population. At the depot we were met by Agent Smith of the South Park Road, who had secured rooms for us at the Grand Park Hotel. He had also arranged for carriages to take us to Cottonwood Hot Springs, about six miles up Cottonwood Creek, where we took supper. We found a first-class sixty-four-room hotel there, with hot baths and everything comfortable and neat. The proprietors are Messrs. Safford and Hartenstein, the latter having been a medical student under Dr. Agnew. After a good supper, we returned to Buena Vista, where the home military company under Captain Johnson, led by the Buena Vista band, serenaded us. I responded in a brief but telling speech, which I would give here if I had not forgotten what it was. Some of the other members of the party wanted to make the speech, but I said no. It would not be right. I was representing the president, Mr. Slack, and wearing his overcoat, and therefore it would devolve on me to make the grand opening remarks. It was the greatest effort of my life and town lots in Buena Vista depreciated fifty per cent. We found A.D. Butler, formerly of Cheyenne, now at Buena Vista, also Tom Campbell, well known to Laramie people, doing well at the new city, and a prospective member of the Colorado legislature. George Marion, formerly of Laramie, is also at Buena Vista, engaged in the retail bridge trade. We also met Messrs. Leonard of the Times and Kennedy of the Herald, who treated us the whitest kind. Mr. Leonard and wife went with us yesterday over to Gunnison City. Billy Butler, formerly of Laramie, is now at Buena Vista, successfully engaged in mining. Yesterday we put in the most happy day of the entire trip. Under the very kind and thoughtful guidance of Superintendent E. Wilbur of the Gunnison Division of the South Park Road, we went over the mountain to Gunnison and through the wonderful Alpine Tunnel, the highest railroad point in the United States, and with its approaches 2,600 feet long. When you pass through the tunnel, the brakeman makes you close your window and take in your head. He does this for two reasons. First, you can't see anything if you look out. And secondly, the company don't like to hire an extra man to go through the tunnel twice a day and wipe the remains of tourists off the walls. The newsboy told me that a tourist from Philadelphia once tried to wipe his nose on the Alpine Tunnel while the train was in motion, 
and when they got through into daylight and his companions told him to take in his head, he couldn't do it, because it was half a mile behind examining the formation of the tunnel. Later it was found that the man was dead. The passengers said that they noticed a kind of crunching noise while going through the tunnel that sounded like a smashing of false teeth, but they paid no attention to it. Mr. Wilbur afterward told me that there had never been a passenger killed on the road, so I may have been misled by this newsboy. Still, he didn't look like a boy who would trifle with a man's feelings in that way. However, I will leave the remainder of the Gunnison trip for another letter, as this is already too long. End of section 25